0: Today on Basic, the creators of The Daily Show, Madeline Smithberg and Liz Winstead.
1: We were watching so much of television, news, and media that one day we just said, What if we pretend we're them? And it was like an aha moment and it solved our problem. What Doug had said to me in the beginning was, I want a show that will do for Comedy Central what Sports Center does. For ESPN.
2: It's sort of like Sports Center for News. And I was like, whatever that means. And then it was like, it wanted a show that was on every day. And I remember it was like, Madeline, let's just call it the Daily Show and try to be funny about it. And then that stuff. The network really wanted to be a little bit more entertainment focused than Madeline and I were with the news.
1: Well, they would say more pop culture, more pop culture. More pop
2: culture, more pop culture. And that was Doug. And I was like, we just
1: ignored it.
3: Hey, I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive, and I'm still looking for my moment of zen.
0: And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture in New York Magazine, and this is my moment of zen. You are listening to BASIC.
3: Hey, we're the official podcast of the unofficial history of BASIC cable television. We talk about everything from MTV to Mad Men, exploring the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that define TV in the glorious era of BASIC cable.
0: Today, our guests are Madeline Smithberg and Liz Winstead, co-creators of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, which went on to become one of the most influential shows in late-night history.
3: Madeline and Liz and I go all the way back together, and we'll see if our memories and recalls still line up after all these years.
0: I'm anxious to hear all about it and possibly play referee if I need to. (laughs) So let's get started with Madeline Smithberg and Liz Winstead.
3: Well, welcome Madeline Smithberg and Liz Winstead to BASIC. We're going to kick this off the way we always do. Do either of you remember when you first got cable television? Yes, I do. Tell us about that, Madeline.
1: I was in college and it was my senior year. So that would have been 1981. I had an accident. I got 11 stitches in my finger making my bed. Don't ask. (laughs) And it was kind of housebound because I couldn't like hurt to even do anything. And I got HBO. Does that count? Well, we're
3: talking basic here, but
1: that's okay. okay. We'll allow it. It's fine. <laughs> we'll allow that? All right. And I watched Officer and a Gentleman. I, I think I watched it like 20 times. Richard Gere time. and Deborah Winger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning.
3: A lot of movies. How about you, Liz? you remember Cable?
1: You know, I don't remember when I got Cable,
2: but I do remember when my brother got Cable because I couldn't afford Cable. And my brother got Cable and I babysat his kids and he had a waterbed, and I was a punk rock kid in Minneapolis, and I sat on his waterbed, and I just watched video after video, Chuck Statler video of Elvis Costello after Chuck Statler video, and I couldn't believe that there was this channel, MTV, that was just showing me every band I loved in all these, like, it was the greatest thing ever. It was awesome. So that was my, like, Remember defining moment of like, when can I afford to have this in my house?
3: Got it.
0: So I wanted to, to know if you guys could talk about how you met, because I know you worked on The John Stewart Show. You also, I think, lived in the same apartment building. Which thing came first?
1: Liz moved in upstairs for me in a really beautiful, we lived in a brownstone on West 20th Street on what was called a seminary block, because there was this beautiful Episcopal seminary and they had wisteria. And one day somebody moves into the apartment upstairs and immediately has a party and i remember thinking uh oh and then we met and i was like oh my god this is cool and we immediately became really good friends and started hanging out and i was on the john stewart show and we had just left mtv and gotten syndicated by paramount which was the beginning of the end and john hated one of our segment producers cuz she was an experienced segment producer but she wasn't funny And he said, I need a comedian to be a segment producer. And I go, well, I got one upstairs. And so I asked Liz, hey, do you want to be a segment producer? And she's like, yeah, that is awesome. And so Liz came on the Jon Stewart show. And that was both how we met and how we started working together. This is my version. And I know that. And I know I will be corrected and updated. But this is my origin story. And I'm going to stand by it. This is my perception, and I'm sure it's different from everyone else's, but I'll do the baseline. So as soon as Doug Herzog and Eileen Katz moved from MTV, where they had hired me and gave me my first job actually being a showrunner, because I had been a segment producer at Late Night with David Letterman, and they had so much confidence in me that they hired me to do a job I'd never done and then supported me with Lori Rich, most incredible line producer in the world. Doug and Eileen go to Comedy Central and immediately call me and ask me if I want to run original programming. And I look at Eileen, I go, no, like that's not me. I'm not an executive. And then they said, Doug said, well, we're doing this daily show and you'd be perfect for it. And I said, Doug, I'm trying to get pregnant. I don't want to do a daily show. I'm done, move on. And Doug, you know, moved on. There
3: might've been something about you can't afford it as well.
1: That's coming later. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Liz and me and Jonathan, my ex, who was still friends and very funny guy, we're watching TV one night and we come up with this brainstorming of an idea for a show. And the show is called The Network. And it's like if Larry Sanders had been about an entire TV network and it was the worst cable network in the world and all the programs on it, were awful and we were just satirizing all of television. And some of the shows we invented then became actual shows. We had one that was a spoof on cops that was called Dots and it was about people getting their cars towed and that became a real show. Like you couldn't even exaggerate it. And we had this idea and we went to lunch with Eileen like the next day and Eileen Katz took us in a taxi from that restaurant on 11th street that was really fabulous. And we went up to Doug's office at 775 Broadway and we pitched the show and Doug and Eileen set Liz myself and Elise Roth who was my business partner in half-baked productions which was supposed to be about food but I was ahead of myself they set us up in a development deal and they put us in an office and we started playing and this is my story of it Doug that every like three weeks Doug would come in and go Please do the Daily Show. Please do the Daily Show. And I go, no. And then one day.
2: wait. But I have to say, all of this time, every time Madeline would say no, I'm like, fuck you, Madeline. Say yes. Because I liked this network thing, but this Daily Show thing was like literally what I have been working for in my whole career. And Madeline's like, no. And I was like, are you kidding me?
1: My memory of it, Doug, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I go out one day to use the restroom and get some water. And in my version of the story, Doug pushes me against the wall, but not in a me too way in like a, <laughs> that comes in, later, <laughs> in like a friend way. And he says these words, Madeline Smithberg, what are you doing? You're in there creating a show. I can't afford to make. This is the job you were born to do. And then he said the magic words. You don't even have to do a pilot. I will give you a year to figure out what it is. And I'm going to put most of the production budget and almost all of my promotional budget behind your show. And I looked at him and I went, Okay, and I went back in the office where in my memory of it, Elise and Liz were and I go, "Okay, ladies, the plan is changing. And I got blank stares and then shrugs. And then we just all took the cards down and started putting cards up. And we invented The Daily Show. But it wasn't until Brian Unger came on the show and a couple of the writers that we nailed it. And I remember us nailing it in a room Together, Brian had come from traditional TV news and he was disgusted and Liz was disgusted, and we were disgusted. The media was awful. And it was also during a time when 24-hour cable networks were sprouting sprouting up like weeds. No, no, mm-mm, that, is no not, that, okay. that is not. No, they weren't. Okay. This right. is my memory. <laughs> <laughs> and Stone Phillips, the, this was when the NBC primetime schedule was in like post-Seinfeld disarray. Dateline was on five nights a week, and we would study Stone Phillips. I always say he deserved a created by credit, along with Brian, who I do think really did, because we studied his furrowed brow, his head tilts, his walk and talks, his camera turns. We were watching so much of television, news, and media that one day we just said, what if we pretend we're them? And it was an aha moment. And it solved our problem because the more serious we pretended to be, the more we would go to what I call silly town, because you'd be anchored in the reality of trying to be self-important and that Came clear. So Liz, Yes.
3: what do you remember was the like sort of brief you got from Comedy Central on The Daily Show? Like what were the marching orders as far as you were concerned?
2: Well, first we got some kind of like, it's sort of like sports center for news. And I was like, whatever that means. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't know what that means. It wanted a show that was on every day. And I remember it was like Madeline. Let's just call it the Daily Show, and I try to be funny about it. And then that stopped. I remember that one of the things as we were developing it that was, I guess, I would call it a source of like creative differences. Is I felt like the network really wanted to be a little bit more entertainment focused than Madeline and I were with the news.
1: Well, they would say more pop culture, more pop culture, more pop culture, more pop culture, and that was Doug. We just ignored it.
2: <laughs> well, and my whole thing was. In the greater landscape of the network, we need to be in bed with all these pop culture people. So why do we want to skewer them? That doesn't have longevity. Let's skewer the big guys and then like have the pop culture guests on and then feel like they're having fun.
1: What Doug had said to me in the beginning was, I want a show that will do for Comedy Central what Sports Center does for ESPN, which is. If something happens in the world of sports, everybody turns to Sports Center. So, ours was to be if anything happened in the world, everybody would have to tune to the Daily Show and Comedy Central to see how it was handled. And I think we fulfilled your task. I think you did. Yeah.
3: Definitely. Liz. I think you're totally right about how you guys were looking at the show pre cable news networks. It was you guys were almost sort of focused on like local news reports. I remember, mm-hmm. All, and to the point that you also said newscasts don't have audiences. Oh, right.
2: Oh my oh, god. We oh my
1: god. Such idiots.
2: A bad battle. <laughs> a bad battle. And I will stand by one of my worst suggestions and hills that i think i died on was let's not have an an audience audience.
1: for a comedy show so liz and i are adamant it's going to affect the purity of our beautiful satirical work and doug's not having it and so he books us the sally jesse raphael show And their audience. So the audience was like half in walkers and they were just gonna come to a TV taping in the middle of the day and we're on this brightly colored set. But we put a show we'd already done on its feet in front of this audience. And I think I was timing it like seven minutes in, Liz and I said, we can stop, we're wrong, you're right. Let's get us an audience. So now we're in a thousand square foot stage. It was the old McNeil Lehrer studio in what's now the Hudson Hotel. I've had apartments that were larger, and not only do we have a set and cameras, but now we have to put a hundred people. And I think the bleachers were like vertical; like people were on each other. People were like piggybacking on each other just to get in there. But we did it. You did it. We got an audience in there, and it changed the show so much. It became just so much more fun. And there's a reason why comedy needs an audience. This whole thing was really Doug's vision. like Doug had this vision and we came in and we were like the architects that tried to like build the thing that would be his vision. And to your credit, Doug of you and Eileen, you let us really do what we did. I mean, I always think that like I hired Stephen Colbert without ever getting approval. I just thought he was funny. And I booked him and he came on the show. That would never happen today.
0: So I want to go back for a second to when Craig Kilborn came on, because I believe that you had a first meeting with him <laughs> where, if the history that I've read is accurate, he would have been fired like instantly if he had said what he said in this meeting. But oh, yeah. can you tell people about that?
1: Liz, you got it.
2: <laughs> Sadly, I do. And this is where, (laughs) and this is, I think, where Matt and I sort of have differences of like feeling the difference in being a woman in this. And part of that is when you are at the top, you might not see as much because people have to pretend that things are okay Mm -hmm. to their bosses. And especially it's your first time job. So Craig Kilborn walks into the office, starts talking, can't remember where it went, but volunteers to Doug that he loves brown sugar and that he...
3: Actually, I remember the quote. Go Uh, ahead. (laughs) We're in my office. It is Madeline Smithberg, Liz Winstead, and the aforementioned Eileen Katz, who was the executive on the show and head of development, and Craig Kilborn sits down. He goes, hey, uh, some of you guys used to work for MTV. And Eileen and I sort of like, yeah, yeah. us. he goes, do you know Julie Brown? We're like, yeah, of course. He goes, oh, he goes, because I love the brown sugar.
1: And that's when you should have fired him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, Liz, you can pick up the story for me.
1: Oh, yeah. So I was like, <laughs> we're all in shock. <laughs> me and Eileen and Liz were like, no. By <laughs> the glass coffee
3: table. I thought Liz yeah. was going to leap across the coffee table and choke the life
1: out of him.
2: Right. But I also want to say, like, in the interest of being truthful, that it went unchecked, told me something. Told me I can't call shit out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And it did. The thing that I will say for Craig is that any other host would never have given the show the ability to find its structure and roots. And because all he did was read and he had pretty good timing, I thought of him as kind of a Ted Baxter character. (laughs) His timing was great. He looked the part and he would read the words and do the jokes justice in terms of timing most of the time. But he didn't really care about anything except if the makeup on his hands matched the makeup on his face. And my life has never been better in terms of I left the job at home. It was all fun. I never stressed about it. It was easy. And the voice of us and the writers really were the star of the show. And Craig was just a person who, you know, read it. I think Craig felt
3: like an outsider in the ecosystem of The Daily Show.
1: Yeah. He didn't care, though, believe me.
2: No. We were a family, and he didn't care.
3: So the Craig Kilborn era, you guys did an amazing job. Certainly from the Comedy Central standpoint, we were thrilled. You know, the show, kind of a little bit of a slow build, but got people's attention. We got noticed. Craig started to get some press, some good, some bad, but certainly people noticed him in the show. And we were kind of, you know, sort of motoring along, having a good time with a bunch of great people, as Madeline said. And then he did that interview. Bum, bum, bum.
2: <clears throat> yeah, he did the interview. And part of my being a nap to the network was I kept saying over and over, don't let Craig do interviews alone. And also, I don't want journalists in the writer's room. Part of it was I didn't know what Craig was going to say. And the other part was the show was really smart. And I didn't know if Craig was going to be able to do an interview that lived up to that. And I really loved the fact that people didn't know if he was Ted Baxter or William Hurt or was he in on it. And that really kind of led to the mystique of it. So the network was just tired of me saying, stop telling us how we should be promoting this. And finally, I was like, I guess I'm just going to fucking lose this battle. Fine. Let him go out with this guy. To do an interview alone.
3: But he said what he said. It was awful and it was was unacceptable. He got suspended. Liz ended up leaving the show, which was unfortunate. And I certainly, you know, in retrospect, particularly given how I like to think I've evolved, but certainly how the world has evolved, you know, I think back and go, wow, what would I have done differently? What could we have done differently? And, you know, was there another way the story might have turned out? You know, I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah.
2: You know, I, I don't know if the answer is either. But what I do think and Madeline, I think it goes to the familial nature of who we were as a show. Right. And so I think that you being this incredible leader and mother figure, I don't think really saw the layers and the pain. And I don't think I felt like I could reveal them to anybody because why could I right? We all knew Craig was contentious and wanted me out for months before he said anything. And I, you know, I don't know, but I think he thought if he said something in a magazine, that might set me off. And truth be told. It did. It did. And the reason I left was there's no way that I could have, in good conscience, run a staff professionally with the feelings I had for Craig. I had to go. I mean, he didn't say anything that was very deep. He said that I was hired to blow him and that the women on the staff were bitches.
3: No, he said, how do you get along with Liz Winstead? And he said, Liz loves me. She would da if you know. If I want, if her I asked, her, her, if too. I asked her to,
0: yeah. And didn't he also use the b word in that interview? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. about the women yeah. on the staff.
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. In 2022, you would never see him again.
2: If he wasn't gonna go, I'm glad I did so that I could move on. And Doug hired me when he left. Too, you know, whatever.
3: Before we turn to the John Stewart, era, when you look back and you think about your Daily Show and your time at the Daily Show, how do you think about it?
2: I think about it as one of the most incredibly fun, formative things that's ever happened to me. I often will say to people, it's almost unfortunate that I got to do my dream job as my very first real job.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I hear that. I kind of feel the same way.
0: Right. I have a follow-up, me which too. is when, when Liz, when you decided to leave, Madeline, how did you... Feel about that? What
1: conversations did you? Have? I told her she shouldn't leave, and she wouldn't talk to me. I didn't get invited to her going away party. It was really awful, and I felt very, very, very bad about it because I had left for six weeks, and I think I was kind of stopping some kind of crazy vacuum from happening. And when I left for my six weeks of maternity leave, thanks, Doug. Um, <laughs> I don't even think that's legal. Uh, <laughs> this
3: this um, podcast at the end of the day is just going to bury me for life. <laughs>
1: this, it's an indictment of
0: everything you've every, done in your career. Everybody course. that comes on here has got something. I didn't pay Cindy yeah.
3: Crawford enough money.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Everybody you paid that comes her on nothing. here has got a different Initially, price. Initially, yeah. you paid her
1: nothing. Anyway, <laughs> nothing nothing. Her house of style. Um, <laughs> but I was sort of in another headspace. I wasn't sleeping. I had an infant. I was in heaven. I had gone through hell and high water to be a mom. I did a failed in vitro. I had an adoption fall through on me after I Ugh. held the baby. Oh, and terrible. I finally get the most beautiful, perfect, amazing infant. And that's where my head was. I wasn't like in the thing, and Liz kept saying like, "Craig's trying to take over the show. We want some moment for us to be three minutes." And I just, I, did, I was like, "I don't know what you're fucking talking about." Okay, I, everything's melting. Yeah. Like, I just wasn't really yeah. in it, and I was very hurt when I was sort of glommed onto management. And the day of your going away party, I remember Hank and Rob Fox came up to my office and like hugged me because I was crying and I was just really yeah. hurt because I felt like I had hired you. I had brought you there and that I did not really deserve to be included in the us and them part of it. And that that just was really, really hurtful, but we made up and we're good now.
3: Yeah, and You, were certainly, I, caught the, you were certainly caught in the middle. Um, Cause yeah. ultimately the final decision was mine. And like I said, as I look back on it, I don't necessarily think I made the right one. And I, I hope I've apologized to Liz numerous times over the years.
2: No, 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 you totally have. But I do want to put a button on this. And that's to say, I think what you said, Madeline, is valid. And I remember going to my shrink and my shrink said, if you need to be silent, and this is maybe where I miss it. I think I said, I need to take time for myself to be a wave and get advice only from people who are thinking about me right? And not about how is the show going to go and what is going to happen. And that's what I needed to do. And I have to say, and I'm sorry, I'm crying. Um, I think the one thing that made me feel the worst was that in leaving and taking care of myself, I was told and led to believe that all of you thought that i was planning something nefarious that i was going to write a book or that i was going to come out and like do something really shitty and that that there was ever a belief that i would ever have done that just that was i think the part where i was like i'm just going
0: to i'm going to back off
1: yeah i don't i certainly don't remember i don't remember thinking that ever you know
3: for me when i look back the single thing i could point to is you know i put the show before the people And it just wasn't the right thing to do at the time. And there was another way out of this. And, you know, I didn't necessarily choose the right path because I was focused on the show. And I was like, oh, my God, we worked so hard. We got this show going. You know, we can't let this fall apart. And that was I sort of taped it back together. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it was never the same.
2: But also, I have a question. Because of the timing, was Craig negotiating his out on top of it secretly at that point?
3: Not
1: yet. Not yet. Because I always wondered about that. That's like the basic cable thing. It wasn't another year until that would happen.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, But but Craig also, Craig also, for the, you know, Craig sort of looked at the Daily Show as a stepping stone the entire time he was there. He was just passing
1: through, Mm -hmm. he was passing through. He was passing well,
0: through. one thing I think we've learned is that none of us need to go to therapy. We just need to go on a podcast
1: <laughs> so we can work it all through. Do you have tissues, Winston? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to come hug you. This has been very cathartic. This
3: has been very- <laughs> so Liz leaves, then Craig leaves.
1: Well, no, OK, so let me step in here. So Craig told me that he was leaving and that he was going to CBS to take over the Late Late Show. And at that time, we had just taken over the 53rd Street building. I was building my dream studio. And I'm on the set looking at my new set and the lights that can go on behind the thing. And I get a call. And it's Rob Burnett, who runs Worldwide Pants and is the executive producer of Late Night with David Letterman, where I, well, no, Late Show with David Letterman. I worked on Late Night with David Letterman. For six years, I consider it my graduate school, 86 to 92. I was the human interest booker and producer and also did all the cooking segments <laughs> just to keep Matt in the kitchen life. But I get this call and it's Rob Burnett. And he goes, can you come over here and talk to me and Dave? And I go now. And he goes, yes. I go, OK. And I kind of leave the set walk through and I go over to the Ed Sullivan Theater And I'm in this meeting with Dave and Dave is wearing the baseball cap and he's got an unlit cigar. And he goes, you know, we're all so proud of you. You left here and you've done something new. You've created a new way to do comedy over there at your little daily show. And we couldn't be just more tickled for your success. That was the word that he used. But we're going to be doing a new thing with the Late Late Show and we want to give it to you. We have a guy, but it's not about the guy. We want to give it to you and it's your time and you can create whatever. And if this guy doesn't work out, we'll get you a new person. You know, you've proven that you're a real producer and we want you to come and do this late, late show for me. And I go, well, who's your guy? And I know it's great. And they go, well, we can't tell you. I go, well, it's really important because if you tell me that that guy is Jon Stewart, I will be on a plane to California because it was going to be in L.A., But if you tell me that it's Craig Kilborn, I will tell you you've made, I'm sorry, Craig, but I will tell you you've made a terrible mistake and that the guy can't carry an hour. Dave took the cigar out of his mouth and he goes, Rob, is it too late to get out of this thing? So now here I am. I finally, I have my son. I'm buying a co-op on the Upper West Side. My parents who live in Chelsea are miserable that I'm moving to the Upper West Side. And suddenly here's this opportunity in Los Angeles but it means taking my baby away from my dad, who's like grandfather of the year. And my grandfather was really big in my life. And I'm all confused. So I call my good friend, John Stewart, and I go, What do I do? And he goes, Okay, we got this. Let's break it down. Are you proud of what the daily show is? Do you like the people that you work with? And are you excited to come to work every morning? And I said, Yes, I feel like we have found a new way to actually deliver comedy. And I couldn't be more proud of it. I love everybody I work with. They're like a giant family to me. And I am excited to go in every morning and see what hand the world has dealt us and how we're gonna play it. And he told me that in the course of that conversation, He decided that he wanted to host The Daily Show.
0: When John came on, everything that you've talked about in terms of what Craig was like, it seems to me like John Stewart was the opposite of that, like extremely invested, wanted to really set the tone for everything. And that's obviously a huge sea
1: change for you. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) it was interesting because for me, it was my world's colliding. I mean, I was John's first producer. On the John Stewart show on m t v and he and I had an incredible like we fell in comedic love during our first meeting in Doug your it was I think it was Eileen's office actually Probably, yeah it was Eileen's office when they brought John up from the basement and we just started going back and forth, and it went on an hour and a half, and we really like comedically and just myself, I'm a chameleon, I could produce Letterman, I could produce John. I get inside the head of whoever the talent is, who would later be Steve Harvey. That was an interesting one. Um, But I would know like, you know, what they wanted. And I could kind of like just take that and run with it. So I was very excited because it was like, look at this. My worlds are colliding. And then John came in and met with the writers. And it was J.R. Havlin who just in the middle of this writers meeting said, are you going to wear the leather jacket? And John snapped and left the meeting, and there was never another writer's meeting again.
3: In a broad way, the show went from a producer and writers' room point of view to the host's point of view—a single vision. Yeah, and so the dynamic completely changed. And Madeline, you know, is uh, you know who was who was really you know, uh, along with you, Liz, you know, the point of view of the show prior to John is now just serving in a very strict producer's type role, facilitating.
1: Although, no, it was still very collaborative, and I'll tell you when it changed, it was rocky for a little bit, and it was such an unhappy place because the writers just felt like they'd been completely you know, shut down, and they'd had the keys to the kingdom, and suddenly were, like, banished, and It wasn't nearly as much fun. The stakes got higher, but the show kept getting better. But I think, Doug, really where the, let's call it Daily Show 2.0 emerged was when we did The Greatest Millennium. And it was our year-end special in 1999. And we it was me and John and Ben, and I don't think any of the writers were there, but Stuart Bailey, and we would stay after and work on it. And then we, you know, sort of assigned different writers to different things, but we were drinking vodka and smoking pot and we were brainstorming. My favorite thing we ever did, and I feel like it really would like sort of be the harbinger for what was to come was we did this panel discussion on crack where we had way too many panelists and we were discussing, were UFOs real? And Stuart Bailey went out. We got like the singing psychic. We got all the guy, Jody Pandarvis, that had a UFO welcome center in his house. I think, what's her name, Laura? Not Laura Ingram, the other one, the, the, the you know, Liz, the... Dr. Laura? No, no, no. The pundit that just is always screaming and totally like upside down. She doesn't even believe what she's saying, but she's a... I can't remember her name, but anyway, she was there. And Are we you pe-
2: literally saying, you know, that one person who does that thing?
1: He <laughs> <laughs> was the first.
3: Everybody on the Fox network and no, she was We're on Fox News and Coulter
1: and uh, Coulter. Coulter. And we did John like a huge Ted Koppel. None of it was live, but it sounded like it was. So we wrote backwards to it. For me, it was just like my proudest achievement ever. And after that, we nailed it and we knew how to really have fun with it. And we realized the bigger John went in the Ted Koppel mm, anchory thing, the more like ridiculously silly. And that because of that, we were ready for the 2000 election. And the 2000 election was unbelievable.
3: That's where the modern 2.0 history of The Daily Show. Began. That's
1: where it yeah. starts. But it really started. In 1999.
3: All right. That was the pregame.
1: Because in terms of the creative process and being really playful, it became fun again. So then we prepare for the 2000 election. And it's indecision 2000. We're doing this big two-hour live special. And we had to write jokes for every outcome of every Senate seat. So we had, like, stacks of jokes for every state that we wouldn't know if we were right. going to need. So and there, Adam yeah. Shatakoff had them all organized and in the commercial breaks we'd have to scramble and get the right jokes and run them up to john and the show's going on and it's great and comedy central's having this big party for us and all my friends and my brother are like waiting for me at the party and the show's going on and in the middle of our show florida flipped but it was a a fiasco and we were the only ones that could embrace the fiasco, become the fiasco, play with the fiasco. And it was in that 34 days that the new Daily Show was born. And I have to say that it was really fun to be on a ride where in those 34 days, the show became a massive hit and John was on the cover of Rolling Stone and There were CNN crews in our building. Well, that
3: brought the dream to fruition where there was something going on in America and you had to turn to The Daily Show every night to get that comedic take on it.
0: As an observer of all of this outside of it, and now a TV critic, to me, the turning point in that year was, in a very strange way, you were not obviously part of the mainstream media, but you also were. I mean, you had Steve Carell getting invited to be on John McCain's bus and ask him an actually real question that he had no idea what to do with until he realized that Steve was kind of joking. But yeah, I mean, I think to me, just a huge turning point in both comedy and journalism.
1: Yes, yes. We went legit. And That's when college students started getting their news from us. I was like, no, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Read the New York Times. Like, read the Washington Post. You don't want to get your news from us. That's a lot of responsibility. To
3: close out here, we got a little question for you. We're talking about other TV shows. Other than the basic cable shows you have worked on, like The Daily Show or The Jon Stewart Show, what is your favorite basic cable show? It really is The Colbert Report. We'll accept that.
0: That makes sense. Basic
2: cable show. Favorite.
3: What's your guilty pleasure, please? Come on. Reveal it to America.
2: It doesn't have to be on now?
3: It, no, it could be on any time. No, no it will be on now. It could be on of, of all
1: time.
2: Oh, Mystery Science Theater.
3: Oh,
1: there nice. There you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would go with Colbert also. But Mystery Science Theater, and that's just like being a Minnesota kid and having that show be like, oh my God, it's made it to Comedy
1: Channel. <laughs> was very great. Rick and Morty is pretty good too. I
3: don't know why I feel the urge to reveal every mistake I ever made in my you past career. It. <laughs> I did. So, so given all that's transpired between us, Liz, it's amazing we're still friends.
1: We're still friends.
2: I think it's a testament
0: to me. <laughs>
3: <I'm> gonna, <yeah. laughs> me too. you're a very big person absolutely she's a
1: very big person <laughs> yes much bigger than myself
0: do either of you guys speak to john stewart or anybody from the show do you keep in touch with anybody i came in touch with a lot of people yeah.
1: okay me too okay. not with john okay
0: when the network decided to for some
2: odd reason not do a 25th anniversary special i called up madeline and i was like dude why don't you and I host some old guard and talk about the old days? Cause nobody ever hears about the old days and it was a riot.
0: I want to thank you both personally for, you know, revisiting this stuff. And I know a lot of it can be painful and, but for being so honest and transparent in talking about it, I, I personally really appreciate it. And I think our listeners will too.
4: Yeah.
1: Thanks for having us. Hopefully, you know how I yeah. feel
3: about you. I, I look back on those days uh, that we spent together as literally some of the best times of certainly <sighs> my professional career and my life. It was the best. Oh, Yeah, it was great it fun. Was the best. And you know, certainly we had our, we had our ups and downs. And as Jen said, we really appreciate you both being here today. Um, I love you both, and I hope to see you both soon.
1: Bye, you guys. Thank you.
0: Well, Doug, that was a hell of a conversation we just had to the extent that I I could get a word in. It was a great conversation.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I felt bad for you, Jen. That was like being the fourth wheel at a high school reunion.
0: (laughs) But it was a very informative high school reunion. And as they said, I think hopefully a cathartic one. It just listening to both of them talk and, and certainly especially when Liz got a little bit emotional, it just really drove home for me like work is especially when you're working on a project that is obviously so personal to both of them that they felt so invested in, like you never shake that emotional attachment, even if it's been years since you worked on whatever the job was. And I think it's clear that that's the case for both of them.
3: For sure. And look, I would count myself on that. I, you know, I remember so much about the show, but I remember more about the people and, you know, what we shared, making the show, what we shared, you know, hanging out around the show and and the relationships that were built and remain strong and been repaired over the years are really important things.
0: hmm And we talked about this a little bit, but I don't know that you can overstate sort of the importance of what Liz and Madeline created by creating The Daily Show. As I kind of said a little bit, it certainly changed the way I think a lot of late-night comedy is presented and comedy in general, but the overlap between politics and comedy... And I mean, I think the way that even a lot of the cable news shows do their actual news presentation, I think a lot of it was influenced now by The Daily Show. I mean, it kind of, obviously, it's not a hard news show. That's not what your main resource for news should be. I know for me personally, certainly during the the George W. Bush years, I watched every single night. And sometimes I was getting my information from it. Sometimes I wasn't. But it, it, at the very least, it was helping me process what was going on and putting a, a, a light spin on it on days when I really needed a light spin.
3: And that that kind of became a really big responsibility as you heard them talk about a little bit. So not only did they want to be funny every night, but they wanted to be accurate. They wanted to be credible and they were talking about important things. And it's a high bar to do that every night. I promise you it's not easy. You know, as you know, we heard Madeline talk about sitting in another newsroom and they're, they're all sitting around having a great time, but writing jokes and trying to make. Anything funny, particularly stuff that's not funny funny, is really hard work.
0: It is very hard work. And and it actually reminded me a little bit of a conversation we had with Lisa Napoli about CNN. I mean, they're kind of the Daily Show in a way, especially uh, once Jon Stewart got involved, it was functioning like a newsroom. Like you had hard deadlines and you have to keep on top of what's going on and change your story and change your approach if the news dictates it. The comedy part is different, but that sort of essential gathering of information aspect is no different than what a regular news organization does.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah, you know, like I said, it, it, was, it was a newsroom that also had to produce jokes as well as the news. So it was hard work. They had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, going back to what you said originally, just that they found a different way into late night was a great place to start. We were always conscious of not wanting to do a B-level cut-rate version of Johnny Carson or Jay Leno, I can't even remember who was still on at that point, or Letterman or Arsenio, who was on at that time. You know, we didn't want to do that type of late-night show. We, we needed to find a different way in. Bill Maher, of course, had done Politically Incorrect previously, but that was a panel show. Mm-hmm. And so that was something different. And well, we didn't want to repeat that. So we had to find yet another way in. And I think Madeline and Liz did an incredible job building that house.
0: Yeah. And the, uh, another thing that I was thinking about is what an incubator the show has been. I mean, certainly like the great comedy incubator in this country is still Saturday Night Live. And we've talked about how the state was an incubator for a lot of careers. But The Daily Show, to me, is right up there doing that same kind of thing. I mean, obviously, Jon Stewart was known, but this made him a figure on a different level. It introduced us to Steve Carell and introduced us to Stephen Colbert and Samantha B. and Larry Wilmore being more of a presence. You know, so many people. Uh, John Oliver? I mean, unknown. John was
3: kind of like a mini Lorne Michaels in that regard.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, many of those people he found, John Oliver and Carell, these were all John and the producers sourcing all these great, talented, amazingly talented comedic folks. You know, the one fun fact, and they talked about Colbert a little bit in hiring Colbert, you know, Colbert was there before John Stewart. Colbert was a correspondent on the Craig Kilborn show. So he was actually there the day John Stewart got there. John inherited Stephen, but there's no question. Along with Stephen, he concocted this great character and, and great persona that Stephen had amazing success with.
0: Yeah. You know, I was also thinking, is it streamable? Like the old Daily Show episodes, are they streamable? I don't know the answer to that.
3: I don't know the answer to that either. That's a good question. I remember when, I remember when we first started putting things online at Comedy Central, insisting that we have the entire history of The Daily Show up there so you could go find any day at any time and I don't know what the status of that is at the moment. There's a lot of them. You know, we're now 20, what is it, Twenty twenty-five years. I can't remember what the last anniversary I was. 25,
0: I think, yeah. That didn't Liz or Madeline say that?
3: 25 years, four nights a week, 48 weeks a year. It's a lot of shows. So 25 years later, The Daily Show is still going, and it basically, even though it's now on its third host and has had several incarnations, it's still the house that, Liz Winstead and Madeline Smithberg built, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the bones are still there. It's still headlines, guest, and then maybe tape piece or something else in that third segment. And that's where it all started. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's held
0: up. Absolutely has held up. Yeah, for sure. They should be very proud of what they did.
3: Yeah, it's become a great comedy tradition. I think stands now shoulder to shoulder with all the other broadcast late night shows. Hasn't won an Emmy in a long time, but certainly has won its share of Emmys. And I think we can look forward to uh, watching The Daily Show for a long time. And we're glad Madeline and Liz came by to talk to us about it. Absolutely. And we hope you'll come uh, join us next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney
0: and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
3: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
0: Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson.
3: Edited by Zach Spisner.
0: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to to follow the the show show so you you never miss miss an an episode. episode.